Radio Influence, podcasting redefined. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Dark Delight Podcast with me, Beans, because Frank is on vacation. Yes, he's on vacation. So today and Friday, you're going to get me. I hope that's okay. (laughs) Yeah, um, just to recap, for those of you listening out there in uh, podcast land, starting on the 17th of October, if you could tell your friends who don't like to listen to podcasts, because again, there's like no, there's a very distinct audience. There are podcast listeners and video watchers. They typically do not cross pollinate. Um, If you could tell your friends who don't like to listen to podcasts that there'll be a video show of the Dark Delight podcast every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday, starting October 17th, barring any crazy, I would love you forever because it's time. It's just time to reach more people. It's time to grow the show. It's time. It's just, it's been five years, thousands of shows. I couldn't believe it the other day. I think we hit our 5,000th show and I was like, oh, 500 shows. No, no, no. 5,000 shows. Let me see. I'm just looking at my text messages here to try and find it. All the things with 5,000 in them. But anyway, I digress. I want to do a couple things today um, with with Sans Frank. I want to talk about the uh, Trump defamation lawsuit that was filed um, against CNN. And I want to talk about it in a way that probably it hasn't been spoken about yet. Everybody is very skeptical of it with, with understandably, because there's a couple different things that you need to do when you file a defamation case, especially as a public figure. There is it, it, it's it's very hard to um, grab media or anyone on defamation when you're in the public sphere, especially at the level that Donald Trump is in the public sphere. <laughs> so there is an actual malice standard that you need to overcome, meaning that um, the person, whoever it is that was speaking poorly of you, did so with the intention to hurt you and knowing that the information they were sharing was false or believing it to be false. And how do you prove something like that? Well, it depends. You can do it through discovery. You can do it by um, other examples of things they've said. There's a myriad of different ways. But there are, you know, there are a couple of challenges to this lawsuit and it being successful. But there's also some background um, so number one, the attorneys that took the case, uh, trustee took this case. Trustee is actually a, um, a very uh, adept, a very adept uh, former prosecutor. And I, I did a little background work on him. I'm just trying to pull it up. I don't think I have it on here. Do I? Yeah. So James Trustee. He's also the attorney leading Trump's challenge to the Mar-a-Lago search. He's the one in the special master case that Trump brought on to defend him in that. And then probably if they have the cojones to charge him with anything or indict him with anything, trustee will be the uh, defense attorney. And for good reason, once you hear his resume. So um, he's a formal federal prosecutor, former federal prosecutor, a partner at a D.C. law firm called Ephra Law He was an assistant state's attorney in Montgomery County, Maryland. In the beginning of his career, he moved from there to become an assistant U.S. attorney in the U.S. attorney's office for nine years. He was the chief of organized crime and gang uh, at the DOJ for six years. He's won numerous awards and just this year won the Chambers USA Award for white collar crime and government investigations in Washington, D.C. 
no slouch, understands things, um, is in private practice now. Obviously, Donald Trump has hired him. And from everything you can see, the success of what's happened so far, it's been successful. And there is little that the legacy media can do to criticize him, as you've seen by the lack of, oh, he's a conspiracy theorist. Oh, he's an election denier. Oh, he's this. Oh, he's that. Whatever phraseology they want to use about trusty. So he's on this case, along with um, his uh, counsel in Florida, co-counsel in Florida, which would be uh, Lindsay Halligan. So in case you guys don't know, you can hire an attorney from anywhere in the country to represent you in a lawsuit. They just have to file saying, OK, we want to also be on this case, but you also must have counsel that is local to your state or jurisdiction. So you have to have a lawyer from your state. And if you want to bring someone else in from outside of your state who you feel has a specific, a specific you know, focus or tailored, you know, whatever you, you do that as well. They just have to apply to the court to practice there because they're not licensed there. And the court nine 99.99% of the time will allow that to happen. So Halligan is local counsel. And I didn't get a chance to look up much on her, but um, let's talk about the very first thing that all of these media companies and big corporations in general, including Twitter and, and the rest of them do when it comes to defamation suits or any other kind of lawsuit that might be brought. They go in and they file a motion to dismiss on venue venue, meaning you shouldn't be able to bring this lawsuit here because we're domiciled in California or New York or Austin, Texas, or insert any ultra liberal state city, whatever, where they do business. And they say, I'm not traveling all the way to Florida to try this case because we're here in San Francisco or we're here in New York City or we're here in Washington, D.C. And so the venue isn't proper. So the first thing that these guys do um, in this lawsuit is is really on jurisdiction, parties and venue in that section. They go above and beyond like usually attorneys will put some. Obviously, the, the jurisdiction and venue is proper because, you know, this person lives here and this is where it happened and whatever. But they really spend one, two, three, four, five huge footnotes, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, ten, um, ten or twelve line items in this initial complaint arguing why venue in Florida is proper because they don't want CNN to be able to come in and rip this lawsuit from Florida and make them refile it somewhere else where the courts are more friendly in quotes. So that's that's what they spend a lot of time in. The second thing that they they do in here that I think is really smart. So you've had um, Bill O'Reilly come out and say, hey, you know, he's never going to win this because he has to prove actual damages. That's not actually true. He's suing on um, on something different. He's asking for punitive damages in the amount of, I think, something like four hundred seventy five million dollars. Punitive damages are basically like a punishment to the guilty party. Like, how dare you do this? Don't ever do this again. This has been ridiculously egregious. You're done. That's what a punitive damage is meant for. And that's where the bulk of his his monetary request is. So you don't have to prove actual damages in the amount of four hundred seventy five million dollars to get that awarded. Will it happen? Who knows? There's a long way to go in this case, likely years unless it's dismissed um, immediately, which likely won't happen. This will go on for a little while. But let's get to the complaint now and talk about like what is in this complaint. They very narrowly focus their their 
grievances of all the things that CNN has ever done to President Trump. They have focused on one very specific thing. And here there are several reasons why I think it's genius. Um, Whether it's successful or not, I'm not making any judgments, but I think it's got a better shot of being successful than many defamation suits do. It is the big lie phrasing that they focus on. So CNN has adopted this phrasing, calling everything regarding the election interference and the fact that Donald Trump is questioning the election results as the big lie. And that is associated with Hitler. And so the lawsuit complaint points out several examples where they've used imagery of Hitler and plain language um, comparing Trump to Hitler and um, also, you know, responses from their audience in, in those comparisons and precedent that shows that, you know, you should never do something like this. It's one of the most egregious things. Defamation cases that have been won solely on that um, comparison. And, you know, the fact that um, it's disparate treatment. So like they raise examples in here about how Stacey Abrams questioned the results of the election and said it was illegitimate. It was it was interviewed by Chris Cuomo or whatever broadcaster on his show and said nothing about comparing Stacey Abrams to Hitler. Same thing with Hillary Clinton. Same thing with uh, Elizabeth Warren. There are other people that have done have been interviewed about these very same claims after an election and, you know, whatever, they've they've never treated them the same way. Um, they also have information in here, which is super interesting, about how the new CEO of CNN basically scolded staff. Don't use that phrase anymore. Like, we're not doing it anymore. And then staff ignored him so that if they have information that they can actually um, submit as an exhibit that proves that that stuff actually happened, they're pretty much sunk in terms of CNN in a lot of ways because then you've got the main company uh, admitting to the fact that the stuff is not supposed to happen and it's not right. And then you've got the anchors going off on their own to do it anyway. Um, Jonathan Turley had a piece. Obviously, he is a constitutional attorney far more skilled than anything I would ever even hope to approach where he's saying that, you know, a lot of this is going to be they're going to argue this was the host's opinion. And when you're talking about opinion, it's really hard to prove any defamation because how are you going to say someone's opinion is, you know, is detrimental to a public figure? And that's a hard bar to cross. But a lot of the things that are raised in this very, again, very narrowly tailored complaint are not um, made on their opinion shows. There are a few in here that are made on their opinion shows, but they're not all. And a, a lot of them are made on their straight news shows. And the lawsuit points out how hard it is to tell the difference anymore. Anyway, you know how they claim that they're the most trusted name in news. That's their literal slogan. But yet they're calling Donald Trump Hitler. Um, it, it, it very much ties in just on this one thing of the big lie claim and and its comparison to Nazi Germany and Hitler and how detrimental that is and how that's defamed President Trump. The other thing that's amazing about this is that it would, if it is successful, set precedent for everybody else who is talking about the fact that they don't think that the 2020 election was legitimate to stop being slandered all over the place for it because it's a free speech issue. And it's nothing more like 
uh, I think Matt Taibbi had a video the other day where he explained the entire, like he had a 16 minute long video of every single Democrat who has come out and questioned the results of an election after they've lost, which is basically all of them. And that was in his Substack. If I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes below. But the CNN defamation case that Trump filed is interesting. The complaint is short, sweet, and to the point. It's only 26 pages. Whereas if you contrast that with the filing against Clinton and the rest of the world in the RICO suit in Florida, that was like 200 pages long. Granted, you could argue that the Spygate RICO case was a lot more complicated than this defamation case, but these attorneys could have picked any number of things to go after CNN about when it comes to President Trump. And they have chosen this and they very laser focused on this one thing. So we'll keep an eye on that case, as I do with most cases that come across me. Um, And speaking of which, we'll stick on legal for a minute here and we will move ourselves over to... The SCOTUS. So in case you haven't seen President Trump's attorneys have appealed the appellate court's decision um, in his Mar-a-Lago special master case. I'm going to break it down for everybody because it is very confusing at this point, And I want everyone to understand where we're at. OK, so President Trump filed a civil suit against the DOJ in the in the Mar-a-Lago raid. I think everybody is aware of that. In the civil suit, he asked for the court in Florida to appoint a special master to oversee the filter team, which is a team that the DOJ puts together to make sure that when they're looking through all the stuff that they grabbed out of Mar-a-Lago, they're not looking at things they shouldn't look at. They're not using things they shouldn't use. They're segregating privileged communications, all kinds of stuff. The judge in Florida allowed that and said, absolutely, yes, in in light of these horrible circumstances, we're going to appoint a filter team for you, um, or I'm sorry, a special master for you, to which, of course, the establishment's heads exploded, like, how dare they? Ridiculous. If they're not doing anything wrong, why in the ever-living heck do they care about a filter team? Why? It's, I mean, not a filter team, a special master. I have to stop saying that. Why do they care about a special master? Why? There's no reason to care if you're doing everything right. Then there was an issue of, so that goes on. They they have to go back and forth with each other to figure out who it is that's going to do this job. Both of them uh, put forth a set of names. The DOJ ends up agreeing with the Trump team's suggestion to use Deary. Now understand, Deary is not a judge in the case. He is a special master. He has certain powers and control over things, but he can't like go over the judge in the original case's decision. So he can't overrule Judge Cannon, who was the one who appointed him and say, we're going to do this. That's that's just it's not allowed. So there's been a couple of incidences where that's happened. And Judge Cannon has had to step in and kind of like whip them back into their proper lane. Um, But long, long story short, Judge Cannon had originally said to the DOJ, I don't really care about these hundred. The the DOJ was saying there are a hundred documents that are marked classified. If you take those from us and force them into the special master's purview, it's going to cause harms to national security. It's going to hurt the NSC. It's going to do all kinds of, you know, nonsense stuff that they said. And Donald Trump's attorneys argued that's bollocks, as my friends across the pond would say. Tracy Banks, I'm thinking of you. Um, that's bollocks. You know, that that's ridiculous. That's not going to change anything. These documents might not even be classified at all. Like, we don't even know what they are. We need to be able to see them in this review. 
The judge, Judge Cannon, said, don't stop your security review that you're doing with these documents, guys, but you're going to have to hand them over for the special master. The DOJ said, no, we're not going to. We're appealing. I did a live stream about this um, two weeks ago. I will let me make a note to link it in the show notes here. Hold on a second. Okay. Um, so she she actually slapped them down and said, no, you're going to have to include them. The DOJ said, well, we're appealing. We'll, we will appeal this. They appealed it. The appeals court ruled in their favor. And so the documents were excluded. Well, the Trump attorneys yesterday filed with the Supreme Court, who just started their session. It's in the Fifth Circuit, which just so happens to be um, run by none other than our friend, um, Clarence Thomas. Clarence Thomas. And the Supreme Court yesterday, so what they're saying is basically... um, I'll just read this article. It's better. The Supreme Court has set the deadline for the DOJ to respond to former President Trump's request to reverse an appeals court ruling that halted a decision to allow a special master to review documents marked as classified that were obtained by the FBI during its raid of Mar-a-Lago. Justice Clarence Thomas, who has jurisdiction over the appeals court in play and received the application, gave the DOJ a week until next Tuesday at five to respond to the Trump team's pleading. Um, The deadline was set hours after lawyers for Trump requested the Supreme Court vacate the partial stay order um, that allowed the DOJ to continue to look through roughly 100 allegedly classified documents that the FBI had seized. The ruling from the appeals court reverses a decision by uh, Judge Cannon, who ruled that the DOJ would have to provide seized documents with classification markings to the special master for independent review seeking privileged materials. Um, So. Basically, it's in the it's in the Supreme Court's hands right now um, to after they get the DOJ response. The what what uh, Trump's attorneys filed was something like 247 pages of of opinion and precedent. And, you know, they're pleading in front of the Supreme Court at this case at this point. So I haven't gotten to read it yet. Um, Hold on. I haven't gotten to read it yet. But, yeah, here it is. It's uh, what did I think it was. 200 pages. It's 23 pages. My bad. What happened to me? I must have, I saw, I could have sworn I saw 223 and shut it down because I'm like, I have no uh, time to get into this right now. Um, what is this? This is the wrong link. <laughs> the Onion filed a brief. That's what I just opened. My gosh. Why did I do that? Hold on. Thank you very much, Adam. Um, Adam Carter sent it to me and there that that was another thing that he had sent above it in the message. And I wanted to open it real quick to show you. Um, but hold on. I have it now. It is. <laughs> it's 223 pages. Listen, real time, real time uh, discussion here with you. Yeah. 296 pages. It's 296 pages and um, it, it needs to be read. Like I do need to read it um, and I will, but I, I haven't done it yet. So, there's appendixes and other decisions attached that make sense to this one, even though this is is very unprecedented. Um, but anyway, that's on my list. So that's where we're at in the legal world with stuff like that. But um, there was another story that's been out there for a very long time um, that I've been watching, like behind the scenes, kind of like with my mouth hanging open. And Wendy wrote about it yesterday for us because there's finally been some justice Former eBay executives imprisoned for cyber stalking a blogger. 
This story is like literally insane. So this blogger, um, e-commerce bites was the blogger's name was writing blogs on the internet about eBay and its policies that she didn't agree with. Right. So it was causing like social media hubbub and eBay executives like literally went so far as to install a GPS tracking device device on her car, um, sent packages of, of like bloody, you know, it, it just insane uh, live cockroaches and spiders, funeral wreaths, a bloody pig mask, a book on how to survive the death of a spouse. They placed Craigslist ads saying that the Steiners, the people behind the blog, were claiming to be a married couple seeking sexual partners. They doxed their address. Um, they had like a bot army on Twitter attacking them. It, 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 these, and they, they, they like went to lengths to kind of cover up their behavior. I mean, this article, if you do nothing else um, in the quote, I don't, you need to read it. You just need to. I, I can't even believe that this actually happened. It, it's unbelievable. Like I've been watching this again for like little things would come out here and there, but finally they're convicted. Um, they're sentenced to prison. Seven employees pled guilty. Um, the senior director of safety and security and the company's former director of global resiliency were sentenced on September 29th for their roles. I, I, you got to read the story. You got to read it. You got to read it. I, I almost can't even believe that this actually happened. They, they were tracking them with the GPS device on their car. Seriously, what in the ever living? I, I don't know. It'll be in the show notes. Read the story. Not many people have done it the way that Wendy has. Moving right along. <laughs> Yesterday, Eugene Wu, or you, I'm sorry, um, who is the CEO of Conic, was arrested. This is... Basically, based on information that had come out of the pit, and Wendy was at the pit, actually, um, and there were a bunch of people that did the research through the vote, I'm sure, was somewhat involved in this based on their statements. Um, it says here that what basically happened in layman's terms, and you can check out uh, Kanakoa's substack for all the details on it. He's been writing on this for a couple weeks, I believe now. Um, this this. Software, which basically manages poll worker information and elections on the back end, I want to say, not the actual votes or the vote tallying or anything like that, but it's election worker management software. So when employees are going to be paid or when they come in to clock in or, you know, profiles on their families, their kids, all kinds of information is in here. Um, and what they were doing, allegedly, based on the indictment, was they were storing that data in China. And that is not allowed. So he was arrested and literally a day before this, the New York Times did a piece on how a small little election software company was embroiled in a conspiracy theory. Sorry, New York Times, you're you're every what they're doing. They try to everything that goes wrong with elections at this point. They're trying to run cover for it. It's the same thing they did with apps. They also wrote a piece about poor little Ray apps who I mean, the jury's out on that. But seriously, so um, the thing that interests me about it, outside of like the election uh, impacts or the impacts to people who have their data now in the hands of China and whether or not that data can be used in any way, which we'll get into at another time, wink and a nod. Um, 
This is an L.A. Soros DA that brought these charges. I'm just it kind of floors me that that's the case. Um, and I, I, I mean, they worked with some people in Michigan because that's where the company's headquartered. And they're looking to uh, ex- extradite him to L.A. And I guess he was arrested already. So we'll see. Under its $2.9 million five-year contract with the county, Connick was supposed to securely maintain the data and that only United States citizens and permanent residents have access to it. District attorney investigators found that in, con- in contradiction to the contract, information was stored on servers in the People's Republic of China. That's a problem. That is a big problem. You know, but we're all crazy tinfoil hat wearing conspiracy theorists, you know. So we'll have more on that coming up, too. Wanted to touch on it. Um, a lot of people who were at the pit did a lot of work behind the scenes to get information to kind of shore this up from what I understand. So good, good work to those guys. Independent journalism will change the world. Ain't that the truth? Um, Elon Musk <laughs> has decided to now purchase Twitter after deciding he didn't want to purchase Twitter and taking having Twitter take them to court. He's decided he's going to buy it now. Um, he's buying it for fifty four twenty a share. Uh, Twitter shares surged on yesterday. Then they froze it. They halted the stock. Um, And it says here that this deal could close as soon as Friday. So one of the things that he said in his statements that I'm interested about is that he said, um, I have the quote here. Just bear with me a second. Things are all over. Things are all over. You get to hear me sing. Um, he told Twitter CEO, he would like to unwind permanent bans for everyone outside of spam accounts and those who explicitly promoted violence. While some may argue ex-president Donald Trump fits one of those parameters. Musk has said the ban was morally wrong and flat out stupid. That would be me. I never did anything wrong on Twitter. I never had one strike against me. I never broke any rule. I never, you know, incited violence or told everybody to be violent to the opposite, actually. Um, And so I expect to be reinstated on Twitter. Whether or not I'll use it is a different story. I'll likely end up posting back there the same way that I do on other social media platforms. But I also need my little blue check mark. (laughs) And understand, everybody always clamors about the um, verification. Verification is not like so that you're more important than other people. That that's not what it is. It's That's so people can't impersonate you and say absolutely terrible things and get away with it without people realizing that it's not you. So somebody like on Telegram, you'll see this all the time. People like make fake Tracy Beans accounts and then like DM all of the people that follow our pages and tell them to buy crypto. Yeah, that's so that doesn't happen. And the worst thing is, is that Telegram won't verify you unless you are verified on two other quote, mainstream social media platforms, which I never was because they wouldn't verify me. Not okay. Not okay. So let's see what happens. Let's see. I don't know. Um, Now we've got a couple of clips. (sighs) I just opened a Jim Jordan clip that I want to play for you. I scrolled down from Citizen Free Press. I scrolled down a little bit and there's a link that says Uncover DC has a great write-up. Oh, I love this. I love Citizen Free Press, I swear. Kane and team, you are amazing. You are amazing. And yeah, it is a really great write-up. I'll put it in the show notes below. Thank you, Wendy Mahoney. Here he is. 
intimidate these whistleblowers into uh, silence. Here with more, Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan. Uh, Sounds to me, I thought we had whistleblower laws. I thought we liked whistleblowers. I thought we 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 put hearsay whistleblowers up on a pedestal. So remember how they treated the CIA whistleblower and then contrast, compare, contrast, compare, contrast. That's how you know whenever they hold someone up on a pedestal like that, that they they normally persecute elsewhere. Mm -hmm. There you go. FBI whistleblowers are yeah. being told to shut up. They're not allowed to talk to the likes of you or Grassley or Johnson. Is that what that's how I interpret it? No, you're exactly right. That's the that's the law, Sean, and it's supposed to be followed. But I think it's interesting. And you pointed this out a few weeks ago when I was on your show. and We talked about the 14 whistleblowers, FBI agents who've come to our office the very next day. The very next day, Merrick Garland sends that memo out saying, here are the rules if you're going to speak to Congress. It was a memo designed to chill the speech of brave whistleblowers who want to come forward and tell us the truth. We also know that some of those whistleblowers have had their security clearance revoked, which is always the first step in terminating someone at the FBI. And now we think there's been specific retaliation against a whistleblower who's been suspended. And this is one of the very first whistleblowers we had who's been suspended. He came to us back last fall with the school boards issue when we learned that memo uh, memorandum that came from Attorney General Garland designed to say we're going to use the counterterrorism measures against moms and dads and 20 some parents were investigated by the FBI for simply showing up at a school board meeting. So it continues to escalate. And then when you view it in context of everything we're doing, this is frightening stuff. All right. Let me talk about during the course of your investigation. And I'm hearing there may be as many as 30 whistleblowers. You actually said in the letter that you received the protected whistleblower disclosures that the FBI is engaging in this purge of conservatives. Now, there are two things seemingly going on simultaneously. If they're purging conservatives, silencing them. Now, Merrick Garland is intimidating them, basically saying uh, they're not allowed to talk to elected officials. That would contradict, in my view, whistleblower protection laws. Uh, But they're saying not only has it been politicized, now it's a purging. So what is going on with our Department of Justice? What's happening here? And when do we get to the bottom of it? Because if that's the case, that would explain why we don't have equal justice or equal application of laws in our country, which should scare the hell out of every American. Well, I think it's all designed. I, I think the, the, the plan is all designed to fit this narrative that Joe Biden's laid out there, that half the country are fascists and extremists, this crazy claim that he's made. And now they have to, as I've said, juice the numbers. We've had some whistleblowers talk about that, how they're getting pressured to label all cases as domestic violent extremism cases, to juice the numbers and to cook the books because the way they're cataloging these cases to make it appear that there are domestic violence extremists all over the country, all to fit this narrative. And you now see it manifest in what happened just a week ago in outside of Philadelphia with this pastor and his family. So that seems to be what they're what they're up to. Yeah, they're literally rogue. And I said this on Lars Larson on Monday, when you have a literal out of control, unelected bureaucracy, why do you even need Congress? You can just use the Gestapo to go around and target your enemies. And anyone who disagrees with you, you don't need policy anymore. It serves as a intimidation tactic to chill people from voicing and expressing themselves and practicing their constitutional rights. Their guaranteed rights from God is what it does. And you you don't need you don't need legislation at that point when you you have an, an agency that can ram through your door, hold your family at gunpoint and lock you in a cage for as long as they want.
and courts that seem complicit in the same. Unbelievable. Um, we're going to just take the rest of this as it comes on my on my list. It's a little out of order. I'm going to jump around a bit. Um, first, we have Christopher Rufo, who was on Ingram Angle last night, who has been in the same vein, who has been doing a lot of reporting on trans um, surgeries and hospitals for minors, uh, what they're doing in our schools, etc., so on and so forth. Here, let's listen. Well, tonight, the American Medical Association and two other groups sent a letter to A.G. Merrick Garland demanding that the Justice Department open an investigation into the threats to hospitals providing this so-called gender-affirming care to minors. Now, the letter says, in part, the attacks are rooted in an intentional campaign of disinformation, where a few high-profile users on social media share false and misleading information. Not true. If that were true, then none of these hospitals would be going back and erasing everything that they've, they've got on their website, nixing pages, never to be seen again. Why are you running around trying to cover your tracks if what you're doing is so just and right for, for young children? Explain. They also called on big tech to censor those users spreading so-called disinformation. Well, what they leave out is the tiny little detail that the hospitals they say are under threat are publicly posting these. For any kind of top surgery, uh, we do require one letter of persistent, well-documented gender dysphoria by a licensed mental health provider. Um, we ensure that the patient is capable of making uh, fully informed decisions on their own. Gender-affirming hysterectomy is very similar to most hysterectomies. Yeah. Some gender-affirming hysterectomies will also include the removal of the ovaries. Can you believe this? Listen to how they're happy when they talk, and they all talk the same way, and they all have this weird inflection to their voice. God, I can't. You've heard me mention this before. It drives me insane. It drives me insane. A phalloplasty is a procedure to uh, basically create uh, uh, a penis. Basically? Yeah, basically is right. Joining me now is Chris Rufo, senior fellow at the Manhattan Institute. Chris, they're threatening and defaming people like you. They didn't use your name. But this is really now Soviet-style um operation here with what they're doing with just a debate about a very controversial subject. That's right. And I mean, here are the basic facts. We know from the medical literature that doctors in the United States are performing double mastectomies, removing the breasts of, of young women. They're also performing panectomies and vaginoplasties, which are removing uh, the penis and creating an artificial vagina uh, for minors. These are children under the age of 18. And simply by pointing this out, there's been this furious reaction and what they're trying to do is mobilize the FBI, mobilize the Department of Justice, mobilize, mobilize the entire federal law enforcement apparatus to censor journalists, deplatform journalists, and they say very specifically, investigate and prosecute journalists. Uh, this is a reckless move designed to criminalize dissent uh, and protect these really awful and horrific uh, radical gender surgeries and experiments that they're performing on minors. I believe the individual who um, originally came up with the frontal lobotomy surgery, didn't th that individual win the Nobel Prize for medicine? Was that 1947? I think that's right. So, you know, you, you get the feeling that this is going to be the new frontal lobotomy at some point, um, the way this is going. But the, the idea that they should be able to proceed 
without any criticism, without any examination of their tactics and their conclusions, it's, uh, it's just ludicrous on every level. And it's up to every journalist, I don't care what your perspective is, to stand up for inquiry and, uh, frankly, aggressive inquiry when it comes to children's uh, permanent surgery that will change their lives forever. Children. That's right. And I'd like to deliver a message directly to Attorney General Merrick Garland. Uh, you can intimidate us. You can threaten us. You can mobilize the FBI against us. You can even drag us out of our homes in a pre-dawn raid. We are not going to stop reporting on radical gender theory in schools. We are not going to stop reporting on radical gender surgeries on minors. We are not going to stop until we've taken this rotten ideology out of our institutions. There's nothing you can do to stop us. The people of this country are coming and they won't stop until you're finished. Mm. I have to agree with Christopher Rufo. And like I said, it's time for people to stop being chicken, especially when you've got people need to stand up, like use your voice, stand up, speak out, do your thing. OK, stop being scared of what people are going to think about you or whether you'll be canceled. If you all did that, we wouldn't be in this position anymore. Just stop being scared. The time for fear is over, um, especially when you've got. I can't even I don't major Janet Yellen. This is the social engineering that they've brought into everything. Let, let's listen to this. This this comes off the heels of what Cami Harris did earlier in the week. The Biden-Harris administration has made racial equity a centerpiece of our economic agenda. So forget inflation or a strong U.S. dollar or anything. Forget all that. We're going to make sure that racial equality or racial equity is, is at the forefront. Same thing here from the uh, education secretary when he talks about rights to abortion, or as they call it, reproductive health care, high school students, college students. Listen. Thank you, Mr. President. I share your grave concerns about maintaining access to contraception and reproductive health services on our college campuses. First of all, nobody has taken away contraception. Nobody. They conflate things all the time, just like the Sandy clip we talked about on, on Monday. And ensuring there's accurate, reliable information for students and for educators. Who's stopping the flow students of information? Is it us? <laughs> access to health care to thrive in school and in life. And that includes reproductive health care. Who's, who's stopping? Who's stopping? So instead of worrying about the important things, instead of worrying about the important things, we get stuff like this. President responsible for gas prices going up. So it's a lot more nuance than that, right, um, Peter? Right. You know this. You know uh, this, there Peter. There are global you, challenges that you know. You know that gas prices going up is a lot more nuanced than just you know the fact that we're not paying any attention to it and we're doing everything that we can to stop to stop gas prices from lowering. Dealt with when I say all, meaning other countries as well, have dealt with since the pandemic. There's been pandemic and there's been uh, Putin's war. Uh, uh, uh. And Putin's war uh, has uh, increased gas prices at she, the pump. The worst thing, someone's writing this for her. 
She can't just come out and confidently speak on the position of the White House as it pertains to an issue. She has to look down and read it and sound like she'll try to sound like she's not reading. She's a terrible, terrible, terrible press secretary. Terrible. I would be if this were me, I could do it now. I could do it now. If this were me, I wouldn't even have a binder. (laughs) I would just go up there and be like, that's it. I would be like DeSantis when he trashes the press. That would be what I do. Let's listen to the rest of this nonsense. That was only 25 seconds. She goes on for another two minutes. We have seen that over the past several months. And what the president was able to do, uh, he took some historic steps. When you think about the Strategic Petroleum Reserve and make. Yeah, he 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 drained our strategic oil reserve to the point where now OPEC is coming out and saying, hey, listen, you can't do this. You can't do this. We're going to raise the price of barrels of oil. We're going to hold back production. It's not how a free market economy works. Oh, insanity. Making sure that he, we were able to do everything that we can to bring that cost down uh, for American families, give them a little bit more of a breathing room. And we saw that. We saw that every day this summer uh, over a, uh, saving American families over a dollar per gallon. And so that is um, what... Before you took office, I was paying like a dollar seventy a gallon for regular gas. And now I'm paying over three. And I know places have got it a lot worse than me. So if you're in New York, California, well, Florida, even one of those states, I know. But if going from a dollar seventy-five to like four bucks a gallon, you're not saving me crap. The problem is, is that people get used to the five and then a four is okay. No. Mm-mm. The president's going to continue to, to stay focused on our cons- American consumers. How do we continue uh, to keep uh, to keep prices down? That's why we we did the uh, Inflation Reduction Act. That's why we talk about the chips. The Inflation and Reduction Act does not reduce inflation. It increases it. Sorry. Act. All of these things are going to help Americans here in this country. And there are consumers now in California paying six forty one a gallon for gas. Nevada five fifty one, Oregon five forty six. Who can afford that? And we understand that. That's why the president worked so hard the past yeah, several months. He's worked so uh, to hard to make sure that he did everything we can uh, to bring. You gas know what you could have done? We have seen. You could have opened the pipeline. You could have opened the pipeline. Unbelievable. Fastest. I know you're pulling out a, a couple of areas across the country, and I get that. And we understand that there's more work to do. We have never said uh, we were done here. Uh, we have always been very clear that there is. Everything is upwards. We've never said we are done here. It's so like, who talks like this in real life? Nobody. Nobody talks like that in real life. What else do I got here? Oh, here's something. Just when you thought that the the poll numbers that they're trotting out as uh, four weeks or five weeks before the midterms were something that, you know, we're, we're leaning in favor of the left. Five weeks to go. So let's take a look here. First, the big picture indicator. We always say the president's job approval rating, usually the most reliable indicator of how midterms are going to go for Democrats. This is not good news. Joe Biden's average approval rating is 42.7%. So it's really about 35%. Put that in perspective here with modern presidents at this exact same point in their first midterm and Biden's right at the same level that Trump, uh, that Obama, that Bill Clinton were in what were brutal midterms for them. Mm. The only exception in modern times, George W. Bush, a year after 9-11. You see what this meant. 
for Trump. He lost the House in 18 for Obama. His party lost the House in 10 for Bill Clinton. His party lost the House in 94. And you know what happened when Barack Obama lost the House? Literally nothing. And you know what happened when Donald Trump lost the House? Impeachments. And God, <laughs> Republicans are so spineless. Or Biden's approval rating is right in that range. That's the bad news for Democrats. What's made this a little bit more complicated, though, is when you look at the generic ballot, when you ask folks, Democrat or Republican, who would you like to see control Congress next year? The Republicans actually now have the lead on average on this question. It's by one point, which is really about 10. Democrats actually were ahead until the last week or two. But if you look at the past, the most recent wave elections in midterms, 18, 14, 10, 06, these were all wave elections. And the party that won those waves was up by more than a point at this juncture. Yeah, because, you know, there's a um, zero hedge piece that goes through all of Elon Musk's text messages. We talked about this the other day. I'll put that in the notes, too, for you. Um, nearly half of Americans making six figures are living paycheck to paycheck. That's good news. Very good news. Oh, and in another um, sense of entitlement coming from kids, NYU has fired a chemistry professor after students signed a petition that his class is too hard. We are very concerned about our scores and find that they're not an accurate reflection of the time and effort we put into the class. We urge you to realize that a class with such a high percentage of withdrawals and low grades has failed to make students' learning and well-being a priority and reflects poorly on the chemistry department as well as the institution as a whole, i.e., kids can't handle college, and so they're going to make it easier so that they do better, which is going to lower our... You don't need me to tell you this. You really don't. And to end today, 52 minutes, I did pretty good. To end today, an Iowa parent from, I believe she's from Moms for Liberty, donned a drag queen outfit at a Monday school board meeting to protest after a school drag show that occurred in May. Um, The founder, oh, it's Mama Bears, actually. The founder of Iowa Mama Bears, a parental rights group, wore an outfit similar to what a drag queen wore at an after-school performance. She was protesting a drag queen performance that was hosted by the school um, without the school knowing and after hours, but it was hosted at the school. She took off her sweatshirt and said, uh, does uh, does this outfit make you turn your head? Is this appropriate for anyone here to see? Unbelievable. But she looks good. (laughs) Unbelievable. Anyway, that's it for today. We will be back on Friday with tons more for you. You have been listening to the Dark Delight podcast with Beans. You can hear us every Monday, Wednesday, and Friday at 2.30 Eastern time on TuneIn, Stitcher, Apple iTunes, Google Podcasts, iHeartRadio, Spotify, and RadioInfluence.com. If you're listening to this, I said 52 minutes. That was including my pre-show. So 42 minutes you got from me today. We will be back here on Friday. I'm Jerry Petuck, CEO of Radio Influence. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say thank you for downloading and subscribing to this podcast. There are a lot of people behind the scenes here at Radio Influence that work hard to keep you entertained day in and day out. If you'd like to get involved and advertise on this program, or you have some show ideas that you'd like to see us add to the Radio Influence family, please email us at contact at radioinfluence.com. We all have crazy schedules, so the fact that you took time out of your busy day to let us entertain you for a while means a lot. Without you, the listeners, we wouldn't exist, so thank you again for downloading and subscribing to this show. Don't forget to check out RadioInfluence.com to see what other shows we also have to offer. 
All of Radio Influence's programming can be found on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn Radio, Google Play, and of course, RadioInfluence.com. <laughs>